Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to our weekly podcast, My Wife Hates Video Games. I'm your not-so-humble host, Travis Bone, more affectionately known as Finally He Sleeps Across the Interwebs. I'm a Gen X video game addict, beer enthusiast, and pop culture fanboy. Each week we'll talk books, movies, sci-fi, gaming, comics, soccer, whatever. And yeah, I, I said soccer. I'm coming to you from the middle of a cornfield in Ohio, USA, where we call it soccer because we're idiots. Uh, there's a fair portion of each show dedicated to FIFA Mobile, my favorite video game, with enough info to help you navigate the current season and take your own team to the next level, so make sure you stick around for that. Thanks for spending some time with me today, uh, now let's get down to business and talk pop. Let's jump right in. This week I went to the movies and watched Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Except by the time I got there, it was just titled Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey. The Oscars happened and Parasite walked away with everything like the South Korean Billie Eilish. I'm reading The Shining. Let's see, The Outsider is getting better and better and there's a lot going on in the world of FIFA Mobile. Um, there's a complete list for today, including an epic story about pranks, a few jokes, and a list of disturbing movies I still can't decide if I'm going to talk about or not, because it's so dark it goes against what the focus of this podcast is supposed to be. All things geek with a hefty dose of humor, and that list is anything but humorous. And trying to inject some laughs into it really just sort of sullies what it is, like putting chocolate syrup on a dog shit sundae. So we'll see. If we go long, I may just file that in Chapter 13 and move on or save it for another episode. Up first, I went to the theater with my 14-year-old to check out Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. And yes, that's the title I'm going to use forever. Changing the title doesn't change the movie. I get it. I get it. The sales did match expectations and they wanted Harley Quinn to get top billing on the theater signs instead of people driving by going, what the fuck is Birds of Prey Fantabulous? Because that's all the characters the theater sign had room for. And now saying that out loud, it does sound like the sequel to Priscilla Queen of the Desert, which is one fucked up movie in and of itself. You know, not fucked up enough to make it onto my list of top 10 disturbing films, but Terrence Stamp, a.k.a. General Zod, as a transgender woman, and Guy Pierce, a.k.a. I am Leonard Shelby, and Hugo Weaving, a.k.a. Agent Smith, or better yet, Elrond from Lord of the Rings, as drag queens? I mean, that's pretty disturbing. Only thing worse was to Wong Fu, thanks for everything, Julie Neymar, which was Patrick Swayze, John Leguizamo, and Wesley Snipes all in drag. Not that there's anything wrong with being in drag, but Wesley Snipes in a dress is something that no one should ever have to see. Actually, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn sounds like the sequel to Wong Fu. Uh, so, changing the title does make a bit more sense. I don't know. Anyway, went to see To Wong Fu 2 with Margot Robbie as the titular Harley Quinn while my 8-year-old daughter sat at home devastated that she was not allowed to come along. Kesha's Woman, you know the song. That's Harley Quinn's theme. 
Not exactly appropriate for an impressionable eight-year-old girl. Plus, there's way too many instances of Margot Robbie bending limbs in the direction opposite that which they were intended to be bent, which is pretty gross. Movie was decent. Actually, it was good. It was really funny. I find its lack of ticket sales a bit upsetting because unless there's a big jump worldwide, it will probably be the last time I get to see her featured in a flick. Compared to the likes of Suicide Squad that brought in $133 million in the U.S. on opening weekend and double that worldwide, Birds of Prey only grabbed $33 million U.S. and $81 million worldwide opening weekend. That's a huge difference. Budget was much bigger for Suicide Squad, and it was PG-13 instead of R, but when you look at like Deadpool and Joker's numbers, also R-rated flicks, it makes Birds of Prey look even worse. Again, I really liked it, so those numbers just disappoint me because I know Warner Brothers is going to see it as a bust no matter what. The odds of another Harley Quinn movie are pretty damn low right now. Yet, we're likely to see another gritty, dramatic origin story similar to the Joker in the future, given its success. What I see as setting the Batman franchise apart in this regard is the realism to the story. Batman is just a rich adrenaline junkie. Joker is just a sadistic psychopath. Robin is a circus has-been, and Harley Quinn is just batshit crazy. There's no radioactive spider bites, space aliens, interdimensional superheroes, mutations, Greek gods, or talking raccoons in the mix. Just a lot of guns and a healthy dose of vigilante justice. Another note on this movie, I enjoyed seeing Rosie Perez in there as Renee Montoya. Being a huge boxing fanatic, I keep forgetting that Rosie Perez is and was an actress. Let's talk about The Outsider, the HBO series that I'm fully invested in at this point. The series is based off of Stephen King's novel of the same name, which is also connected to my favorite Stephen King series, Mr. Mercedes. I've talked about this in the last few episodes of the podcast, but because the story in The Outsider is starting to ramp up and diverge from the book, I wanted to discuss it a bit. There's going to be spoilers here if you're watching, so you might want to skip. This week's episode titled In the Pines in the Pines was fantastic. The title was based off of the Lead Belly song made famous by Nirvana in 1994, which is right up the alley, my days in high school. My girl, my girl, don't lie to me. Tell me when did you sleep last night? This episode was really important because it highlights some turning points for the characters. Jack finally comes clean on his involvement with Welcuco. Uh, Holly finally lays down the law with Ralph. Uh, Alec finally gets fed up with Howie. And Glory hits her breaking point, being the in-town oddity, or as she puts it, Bride of Frankenstein married to the monster. The biggest problem I have with the series, besides Holly Gibney not being the Holly Gibney that I know and love, is Ralph being, well, he's almost hero-like in the HBO series. The reason I love the book so much is because of Stephen King's character development. In the novel version, I truly hated, nay, I despised Ralph. He was a disgusting character that you just hated, loathed through the first, let's say, half of the book. 
This is the point in the novel when you finally started to understand Ralph and that loathing for his stubbornness and outright stupidity that led to Terry Maitland's murder at the beginning starts to show some cracks before Holly guides him into the true hero of the story. That transformation in his character is what makes Stephen King a master novelist. The HBO series misses the entire point in that regard. This is the first episode where I felt even remotely as disgusted with Ralph as I did when reading the novel. And that disgust with Ralph that twisted and changed to seeing him as part of the the solution, one of the, the heroes of the story, is why I really liked it. Yet again, always read the book first. The odds of the TV series or movie being better than the book in any case are slightly lower than Warner Brothers making a sequel to Birds of Prey titled To Roman, Thanks for Everything. P.S. Bruce ate what was left of your corpse. Harley and Quinzel. What else is going on? Uh, My kids started playing poker recently. Actually, let me rephrase that. My wife and I started teaching my kids how to play poker. I grew up in a house surrounded by gambling. My grandparents ran an illegal gambling establishment when I was a child, so I spent as much time with a bucket full of quarters dropping them into a video poker machine uh, that was being held until the ATF was done raiding the bar as I did playing Pac-Man on the 2600. I played poker with my family and various other nefarious individuals on a weekly basis from the time I was about six years old until about six years ago when my grandpa passed away. And then soon after that, uh, grandma followed suit when she passed away. And those weekly poker games became monthly. And now, as everyone's kind of died off, actually, as horrible as that is to say, we the family really only gets together on New Year's to play. These family poker games were not about winning and losing. In fact, the house rules at my grandparents for family poker night was the money you gambled with was just that, your gambling money. At the start of the year, everyone began with 100 bucks. You kept that in a bag that you only used for poker. Playing with the same people week in and week out, all you really did was trade that money back and forth. By the end of the year, there may have been one or two winners and losers, but for the most part, you usually ended up with close to the same thing that you started with. It was like family game night, but with seven cards stud instead of Monopoly. One night, a couple of weeks ago, though, my 14-year-old asked if we could teach him how to play cards. My 18 was home with his girlfriend, and they wanted to try too, so you can't leave the 8-year-old daughter out either. We had to start from absolute zero, though, with everyone. I mean, they had to teach him how to hold the cards, how to shuffle, how to deal, let alone what the various games were. Now, my family was always playing dealer's choice with a complete bevy of different gambling variations, many of which were just made-up versions of real games and that have no real meaning outside of my grandparents' house, such as one game called Asshole, which is a variation of Bird, which is a variation of Draw Poker. and Basically, poker, but the player to the immediate left of the dealer stays in the blind, meaning they start with the ante before the deal begins, All bets begin past the bird because they're already in. Uh, That way all hands start with a pot. Now the bird, because they were forced into the hand, 
can draw up to four cards while everyone else only draws three. Asshole takes that to the next level. Immediately to the left of the dealer is the bird, then to the left of the bird is the asshole. If you're playing Dollar Annie, let's say, the bird starts to pot with a dollar, but that bet is doubled to two bucks by the asshole, every hand. Um, all in the blind, that none of them, that's before you start to deal. The asshole doesn't get the advantage of drawing four either. Uh, the game goes all the way around the table, one full revolution, so everyone is both bird and the asshole. There's about a dozen different games we play, as well as about a million variations of those games themselves. So the last two weeks we've been playing poker, and the kids uh, every weekend keep asking for it, which is awesome here at my house. It's been so much fun, just with the poker chips. I mean, we're not using real money. Then last week, my parents caught wind of this and wanted to join. Except playing without cash on the table seemed wrong to them, so like any decent set of grandparents, they staked the kids in the game. I, of course, lost 20 bucks while my kids all came out on the winning side, even if they lost, you know, because Grandma let them keep their stake. The only thing we do not play at my house is Texas Hold'em, which I was raised to believe was poker for dummies. The best part of the whole thing is how quickly it clicked with my 8-year-old daughter. She's like a little card shark. Uh, explain a game to her once, and she's taking chips off my 18-year-old like she's Paul Newman on a pool table. Probably not the best type of parenting, teaching your 8-year-old how to gamble, but in my defense, it worked out great for me. I think my ability to read and anticipate people's actions both on the soccer field and at the office, hell, in life in general, comes from the hundreds of hours I spent around the poker table at my grandparents' house slowly sucking up enough secondhand smoke to kill three horses, learning the ins and outs of manipulation. I guarantee every speeding ticket I've ever talked my way out of is directly possible thanks to my grandma's guidance, sitting next to her watching her run my dad out of a $32 pot of Black Mariah by convincing him she was holding the Queen of Spades in the hole. She wasn't. Thanks, Grandma. I miss you, and I hope I can pay it forward to my kids. All right, let's do a bit of story time. We took it down talking about my dearly departed grandma, so we need to bring it back up a bit. In high school, my parents moved into a new house. I mean, it wasn't new. It was new to them, but actually it was really fucking old. Built in 1929. It was big, which was the point, but it had a ton of problems, one of which was severely outdated plumbing. Within the first couple of years of residence, the plumbing for the house, a single bathroom, yes, it was huge, Four bedrooms, a library, a great room, a living room, a music room, a dining room, laundry room, full basement, kitchen, you name it, and one tiny fucking bathroom. One bathroom the size of a closet with a sink, toilet, and a shower. That one bathroom, the house's only toilet, clogged. Now, not, not once, but multiple times. Being a do-it-yourselfer, my dad decided he could unclog the pipes himself. He did. I'm not going to go into how disgusting, putrid, or vile that process was, uh, but let's just say it was a mess, and you found whatever clogged the pipes. Uh, the basement smelled lovely for about a week or two afterward. This was also the time of my personal sexual awakening. Sexual awakenings leading to buying condoms. New condoms leading to used condoms. Used condoms leading to clogged toilets. 
apparently. The worst of which, I was home from college for the summer, but spending the day at work, I came back to the house for lunch to the non-aromatic smell of putrid toxic waste and a father covered in excrement, not fucking happy with his teenage son. Long story short, no more used condoms in the toilet. What, pray tell, do you do with used condoms if not flush them down the toilet, you might ask? This became the dilemma my girlfriend and I were faced with from time to time. Did I say from time to time? I meant daily. Yes, daily. I was I was in college. First, we decided to stick them in Ziploc baggies and dump them in the trash can at the gas station closest to my house on the way back to her house, which is totally romantic, of course. This worked for a while, but we needed to kind of up our game. You know, I wanted to spice things up a bit, let's say. So on her birthday, post-present presentation coitus, I put the condoms in the gift box her present had came in. I then put the gift box in my pocket and we dumped it in ye old trash can on the way back out of town. After dropping her back off at her house on the way home, I happened into that little gas station and pulled up to the pump next to ye old trash can of ill repute. For whatever reason... While I was waiting on the tank to fill up, I just happened to look into the trash can, and that gift box was gone. I checked the other trash cans, no gift box there either. Everything else was there, trash, cups, paper towels, but no gift box. They had not emptied the cans. The only thing missing was that gift box. I went back to my pump to finish getting my gas, rethinking what had just happened. I mean, what the fuck happened to that gift box? Now that night, I started thinking, this could very well turn out to be the funniest prank, like fucking ever. Now a little backstory here, this was the mid-90s, the internet was, I mean it wasn't even a thing yet, well it was, I mean the internet was out, but it wasn't a real thing yet, it, it was basically CDs you got in the mail that told you you had a free AOL account if you wanted it. That was it. That's all we had. You had to go find your entertainment in strange places. All we had at this point was the Sony PlayStation to keep us busy. PlayStation, as in PS1. Now, I won't call it old school because if you consider the PlayStation to be old school, then you have no idea what 8-bit or even 2-bit gaming was like. Pranks were a much bigger deal when the joy that came from them was more personal. We didn't have YouTube to post videos on or share. They were only good for the laughs at the moment and the stories that came afterward. So much better than what we have now where everyone is looking for an audience. We didn't do the shit we did for likes. We did it so we had something to laugh about the next day at lunch. Many of our pranks would get you arrested or suffer severe backlash nowadays with the help of the same internet that we were missing back then that caused us to do the pranks in the first place. That girl who licked the Bluebell ice cream and put it back in the freezer at Walmart, if you remember that, I think it was last summer, because they posted that on Facebook, it became a major national story. And then there were like a couple of copycats before they started talking about how huge fines they were going to get and up to 20-year prison sentences. We did shit much worse than that on a regular basis. What? 30 years ago, 25 years ago, I had a friend in high school who on multiple occasions bought apple juice from a drugstore, walked outside, dumped out the contents, filled the bottle back up with his own urine, and then walked back in and placed the bottle back into the back of the fridge he just purchased it out of. 
Now, we thought that was hysterical in like 1992. Looking back on it now, though, it makes me want to vomit knowing how many times that played out in the coming days. But because this was before the Internet, without reading an article in the newspaper or seeing a story on the evening news after it happened. I mean, once we left that CVS, this it was someone else's problem. Nowadays, if you did that, it would make national news within a week and he'd be looking at the needle in the backwoods of Texas. A bottle full of piss and a CVS refrigerator is next level when you know how disgusted everyone was at the girl who licked some ice cream. Now, I had another friend who liked to take shits in public places. He called it leaving bait, as in dropping wolf bait, which was an old backwoods slang phrase for dropping the kids off at the pool, taking a deuce, prairie dogging, taking a dump, which taking a dump, that, that's a phrase that's always bothered me. I get the dump part, but why would you be taking it? Wouldn't you be leaving a dump? Anyway, my buddy would just randomly tell us that he thought the mad baiter was about to strike. We'd all groan, and then he'd disappear and literally take a shit. I once saw him shit in a hot tub at a hotel in Windsor, Canada. Another time, he climbed inside a circular rack of discount clothes at Sears and took a shit right there in the store. That stuff was hilarious in the 1990s. In 2020... Now, it would result in a 20-minute debate on Fox News about how deplorable the youth were and that the liberals are to blame for giving their kids the freedom to eat Tide Pods and defecate in public. That or he'd be facing a 50-year prison sentence or a firing squad in Kentucky. Some of our pranks were, and still are, pretty fucking funny, though. One time, we were at the mall. Okay, we were a bit drunk. I think we were first couple of years in college. Our mall at that time had a Walmart attached to it at one end, and a very famous lingerie store at the other end. If you need to know how long ago this was and uh, what the mall was like, imagine last season's Stranger Things, which for me was so spot on, except our mall wasn't full of Russians. Anyway, one night I grabbed a pack of shad bait from Walmart. Now, if you're lost, Walmart back in the day had a huge sporting goods department with some of the best fishing gear around. Now, we're talking rural Ohio, remember, so we had a lot of fishermen in our midst. You could walk in and buy a pack of shad, which is a tiny little fish sealed in a blister pouch that you could use as bait. The bad part of the shad was when you opened it up, the smell of fish was pungent, to say the least. Anyway, I bought a bag of shad that night. Everyone kept asking what I was doing with it, but I kept my mouth shut, just kept smiling and giggling. Uh, we made our way over the course of the next hour or so down to that lingerie store. I won't say its name for fear of any backlash. Even though this was more than 20 years ago, we'll just say it's a secret. Jokingly, uh, with a couple of girls in our crew that night, I drug one by the hand into the bright pink store and just kind of the whole group followed. A bunch of guys would look kind of out of place, but this was a mixed party strolling into the bra and panty orgy on a Saturday night was no big deal. In the back of the store, there was this room full of nothing but thongs and panties, most of which were in drawers. There were some on tables, you know, but you could open up all these drawers and root through there as well. The girls, giggling, began looking and teasing the guys and whatnot. I had a much more nefarious plan. I ripped open that pouch of shad and dropped a couple into the back of each of the underwear drawers. My best friend, watching me do it, was on the verge of pissing himself, but he refrained and instead looked over as kind of like my lookout, just to make sure we were okay as I went on about my work. I closed the drawers, leaving the empty bait bag in the back of the last one. 
We stood and kept mingling with the girls until one of them opened up one of the drawers that had the shad in it. She stood up, quickly grabbed her nose, and gagged. That smell in a drawer full of panties? I mean, I won that night. I won. Me won. Victoria's Secret Zero. The best friend that stood guard that night was the same friend who pissed all over the bathroom after nearly knocking his girlfriend out with a putter one night. That story's in an old episode of the podcast. Just to kind of give you some idea of who we're talking about. I need to go even a little deeper, though, and put a little bit more background on this. Where I grew up in the middle of podunk, dumbfuck, backwoods, Ohio, we used to play a game called Percy. This is where uh, we would take an old purse from Goodwill or whatever and tie a fishing line onto it. Then you throw the purse into the street near an intersection, run the fishing line to the bushes, and you take cover. People drive by, they see the purse, then they make their way around the block for a second drive-by, Sometimes a third or even a fourth before eventually just getting up the nerve to stop. Sometimes they park around the corner, then stroll by nonchalantly and bend over. Hey, what's this? Must be the purse I dropped earlier. This is when we'd start yanking on the fishing line. The reaction of people in this situation is fucking priceless. Some scream, they drop the purse and run. Others fight for the thing with all their might until we'd be forced to drop the string and laugh as they run to their car with this empty purse. Now, eventually we started putting strange things in those purses. At first it was stuff like a simple little note, then Monopoly money, then Polaroid pictures of poop, which is another story all on its own, and eventually actual poop. Not like any of us would shit in the purse, we'd use dog shit. But now that I think about it, with the mad baiter, he probably would have shit in the thing. I mean, he's shitting in hot tubs. So putting actual poop in a purse probably would have eventually taken place if this form of fun wasn't shut down one night by local cops after we got into a fist fight with a 30-year-old guy who wasn't really happy about us pursing him. The problem came because this guy caused an accident stopping his car suddenly in the middle of the road to grab this purse. He gets rear-ended while trying to reach out of his driver's door to pick it up. When he realized the purse had a string on it and his car was wrecked by this old lady too short to see over her steering wheel... He came after us in the bushes. He threw a punch at the biggest of us, who was like only 15 back then, and then proceeded to get the shit kicked out of him by five or six of us 15-year-olds at 9 o'clock on like a Thursday before the cops showed up and witnessed the smallest of our crew hitting the guy in the back with the truck side of his skateboard. Skateboards can be deadly weapons, especially skateboards in the late 80s, early 90s. A seven-ply stiff-ass deck with a set of alloy independent trucks and a set of 97A 64mm slime bowls. It's like swinging a 10-pound mace. Okay, I lost, completely lost train of thought what I was talking about. Condoms. Okay, yeah, back to the clogged toilets and the condoms. Wow, we went way off track. So, before our next date, I gathered the appropriate accoutrement few jewelry boxes, wrapping paper, and ribbon. After explaining my girlfriend the plan, she was ever so excited, which is really quite disturbing now that I think about it. It probably also was the reason we got along so well. So, and, and she was also one of the girls that was with us the night of the panty raid, so this is all starting to make a little bit more sense. The girlfriend and I decided after that night's activities, instead of pursing, we would go gifting for the first time. Now, gifting was going to be the same concept as pursing, but instead of being on a fishing line in the street, we were going to leave the little bundles of joy in prime locations for our peers on foot 
to find, such as the patio table behind the local coffee shop or on the picnic table out in front of the McDonald's. We even left one on the gift table at a graduation party for a fellow student I really just didn't like or care much for, but we won't get into that one just in case she ends up listening to this podcast down the road. Um, Did you like your present, Kathy, back in 1994? I really hope so. Okay. We drop the box, then sit back and wait for someone to happen along. Look both ways, then take it. Commence the giggling. To be fair, we left these boxes in places where people our age were hanging out. Friends of ours, people we knew from high school and college on a Saturday night. We weren't leaving these in the lost and found at church or on the high school principal's desk or anything like that. Although both of those may have been brought up at one point, but never executed. Anyway, things have really changed in the past 25, 30 years. Stuff like that back then was way more funny to us than it was gross and so small scale that it was harmless yet very disgusting and kind of a health hazard. But people were also much more tolerant and less prudish than they are now. The world has gotten so politically correct and trigger charged over the last two decades that the stuff I thought was hilarious as youth would take on a life of its own now. That girl licking the ice cream and the few copycats that followed were arrested. At one point, the news stories were saying they could face up to 20 years in prison for criminal mischief. I saw those stories and wondered what the world had come to. Not because people were licking ice cream and putting it back, but because they were doing it for internet fame, and worse yet, that the authorities and corporations were treating it like the crime of the century. Stuff much worse than this took place 30 years ago, but because it was prior to the invention of the internet and the shrinking of the world due to social media, it never went farther than the guy who opened up one of Steve's bottles of rank apple juice or picked up a purse full of dog shit from the middle of Main Street in middle America. If you think the world is going downhill, you're right, but not because the pranks have become so bad. It's because everyone else has become such huge pussies. Before I get off this subject, the same guy who we called the Mad Baiter wins the award for the best prank of all time. This is another story that maybe I should save for a future podcast, but, you know, fuck it. In in 1992, I was in high school. First day of school, the Mad Baiter, I'm not going to give his name because, believe it or not, he's a health inspector now. I shit you not, I can't make this stuff up. The same guy who shit in a Canadian hot tub... Uh, on spring break, is now a health inspector for the county. Anyway, first day of school that year, he bought about $10 worth of white milk from the school cafeteria at 50 cents a pop. The senior girl ringing him up thought it was funny that this freshman was you know, buying a tray full of milk. We thought he was going to try some cool hand Luke thing and drink it all without vomiting or something, which would have been hilarious in itself. But when he gets back to our table, he dumps it all in his backpack instead. Tells us he's going to play the long game. We had no idea what was going on. And that was like second, third week of August. About Christmas time, he came to the lunch table, pulled a jug of milk out of his backpack, and placed it in the middle of our round table. No one said anything. He reaches out, opens it up, sits back, and told everyone to just be quiet. Took about a minute for the smell to start hitting us. Finally, some, I'm gagging now thinking about this. Finally, someone grabbed the carton to inspect it. As he brought it closer to his face, 
The smell hit him, and he drops it on the fucking table. It spills, and what looked like pale yellow cottage cheese and a soup of vaginal discharge comes spilling out across the table. Everyone grabs their stuff and pushes their chairs back from the big round table. Most of us were gagging. One of the friends with the weakest stomach ran to the bathroom, throwing up on the way. People from the tables next to us started clearing out their stuff, gagging, holding their nose. We were laughing, but couldn't take a breath without retching. Uh, the vice principal comes over to see what was going on, and then he starts gagging. My buddy Reed tells him that he just bought it at the cafeteria, but it was obviously rotten. They cleared the lunch room, gave him 50 cents from the till, and we laughed all the way back to class. Problem was, Reed had 19 more of these cartons still fermenting in his locker. Fast forward to May. Our building was relatively new, uh, built a few years prior. It was a big deal back then because it was modern enough to have air conditioning. At that time, most schools in the area were pre-1980, and the air circulation came from open windows in the event that the temps in Ohio were warm enough to dictate it in the spring or fall. Now, our high school, being new, had no windows. Air conditioning throughout. That's how we got our air. That May, though, it was crazy hot, and the air conditioning goes out. Uh, to keep from closing the school, they opened all the doors and placed these big industrial fans throughout to move enough air to get us through the, the few days it was going to take for the HVAC system to get fixed. The classrooms all opened their doors, and the staff placed fans on top of trash cans in the halls to keep fresh air circulating throughout the building. Dozens of fans. The first day at lunch, Reed tells us what he's planning. A couple of us just stayed home the next day knowing what was coming. So, during fifth period, right after lunch, when Reed was supposed to be in yearbook room, where he had free roam of the halls, as long as he had a camera hanging around his neck, he was, you know, excused, he grabs the cartons out of his locker uh, that had been fermenting there for like eight fucking months and started opening them up, dropping them into trash cans up and down the hallway. The effects were almost immediate. Teachers started closing their doors and just dealt with the heat because the hallways turned putrid. Janitors were gagging, trying to shut off the fans between classes. People were vomiting at their lockers. They were throwing up in the trash cans. The start of sixth period, which was, you know, sixth of eight periods, they came over the intercoms and announced early dismissal. They actually closed the whole fucking building. They sent everyone outside. If you were driving, you could just leave. If you were an unlucky and unpopular freshman, you waited in the parking lot of the football stadium for the buses to arrive and pick your ass up. Literally best prank ever. There were a lot of people who knew Reed had done it, but no one gave him up. The next couple of weeks was touch and go. Whenever any of us were called to the office, we expected punishment was coming because we were being questioned, but it never came. And now Reed is a veteran health inspector. Go figure. I used to live on Twitter. I spent almost all of every day scrolling, tweeting, chatting. It was all advertising for the t-shirt company, so I wrote it off as necessity. I still spend some time on there, but not near as much. The other day I was looking for an old photo to make an emote for Twitch out of, and I came across a picture that featured a tweet from someone I used to converse with a long time ago. Ronnie the Ice Princess. It was a meme someone had made from one of her tweets that cracked me up and I had downloaded it to text to another friend of mine who I knew would appreciate it. It was Lucy from the Peanuts screaming, some asshole is chewing with his mouth open and it sounds like an army of vaginas marching through mud. Now one of my closest friends who ran the t-shirt company with me as she was 
the my marketing lead, a Twitter famous chick from a decade ago. She loved the tweet, loved Ronnie, and hated people who chewed with her mouth open. So seeing that image both reminded me of Ronnie and Angie and what it was like in the glory days of Twitter. You know what I miss most about social media? The free psychotherapy. Now hear me out. Most of the time when you're depressed, worried, or confused, you just need someone to clarify what's important and give you a moment to think it through for yourself. Sometimes this is harder face-to-face. Sometimes this is impossible with someone you can't hide from. Enter the anonymity of social media. Twitter in particular. Most everybody has moved on to other social media forms like uh, Instagram or Snapchat or whatever, but Twitter still has a purpose. Uh, If you're on Twitter for discounts, news, and the latest gossip concerning what celeb is eating where and when she's having her poodle manicured, then you're missing out on the friendships and communities that thrive in this world. Now, I'm basing this off of my time in the past. I mean, right now, I'm as social on social media as my mom at a Little Dicky concert. Sure, she's listening to the song, she knows some of the words and having a decent time, but she's not engaging with anyone on purpose. Not that my mom has ever been to a Little Dicky concert, or maybe she has, I don't know. Uh, my sister did just give her first tattoo the other day, which was a bracelet made up of my birthstones for my sister and my family, including the grandkids, which reminds me I'm the only one left in our family that my sister hasn't tattooed yet. Okay, I'm, I have to think on that. I'm Again, I'm losing my train of thought. Anyway, Twitter. It's great for laughs, flirting, killing time, but if you're lucky, you can actually make a friend or two. If you're really lucky, you can even fall in love. Don't laugh. I've seen it. I've watched people start out in at replies and end up relocating across the country to be closer to one another, even getting married, which is awesome. Congratulations. I've seen it go horribly wrong, too. Someone shuts down their account unexpectedly or leaves the rest of their friends here asking what happened. Or in the case of a couple of my old friends who relocated and even tattooed each other's Twitter handles on themselves, or I think they did it on their anniversary, which was crazy cool at the time, but ended up just crazy when they broke up. Social media can become more than, hey, look at me, hey, look at me, and turn into, hey, how's your week? Instead of talking to everyone, you start talking to someone, many someones. At that point, you've established, hey, how's your week, friends? These can be incredibly strong bonds, too. You'll see people who've never met face-to-face throw down online to defend someone's honor. They'll mourn other people's losses, they'll rejoice in their triumphs, Hey, how's your week, friends, are the greatest thing to have in your corner when you're just fighting to make it out of the round. These friends will go out of their way to cheer you up, give you a virtual shoulder to cry on. It's easy to confide in someone and lend support when you can choose your words before clicking send. There's enough trust to feel confident and just enough anonymity to be brave. Sometimes putting your problems in front of you is enough, writing it out to read back and try to look at it from a different angle. Other times it feels good to just share your baggage. Blogs can be therapeutic, but for the writer and the reader. There, I got that out. I feel better versus I didn't know anyone else felt the same way I do. That's what I miss most about social media. The hey, how's your week, friends? I still talk to a few in text or WhatsApp, and I have a couple that I still hear from about once a year maybe out of the blue or on my birthday or something, but not every week like I did 10 years ago. Of course, I could reach out just as easy, but I'm not cut that way. I'm, I'm more like my mom in a Post Malone concert. She's enjoying the music, but she's not buying beers for anyone. I miss it, but that doesn't mean I'll re-engage with it. 
I did go through uh, Twitter the other day and check up on some old friends. And by check up, I mean I looked at their feeds. I didn't at them or like any of their stuff or anything. I just wanted to see who else fell off the face of the earth, who had become someone else and whatnot. I, I don't know. I was doing this sitting next to my 14-year-old who saw David Blaine pop up on my phone. Going, I was just going through the people that I follow. He looks over and goes, I saw him on David Dilbrick. He was so weird. Now I'm thinking, David Dilbrick? I'm like, the congressman played by Burt Reynolds in the movie Striptease? Which is a testament to how unbelievably hot Demi Moore was in the 1990s. I mean, she still is today. And he's like, no, David Dobrik, the, the YouTuber on his vlog. Now, I know who David Dobrik is. Uh, why I immediately went to Naked Demi Moore is beyond me, or it says something else about other things. But, you know, it's, so the 14 looks over and he's trying to grab my phone out of my hand. Why the hell does he follow you? I forgot that, like, years ago, I told a joke about David Blaine on stage, and then someone tweeted it. Something about if we'd, if we'd have had Twitter a century ago, would we make fun of Harry Houdini and Babe Ruth as much as we drag uh, David Blaine and Nickelback through the mud? Something like that. Someone tweeted it after the show and tagged me in it, along with Nickelback, uh, the band, and David Blaine. He saw it and started tweeting directly at me that I had hurt his feelings, which was hysterical. Um, it turned into a serious uh, series of online jokes back and forth about my kid's rabbit going missing. Uh, at one point, I said the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist, and that was the trick I was still waiting on David Blaine to perfect. It was funny. Um, all back and forth stuff that lasted about a year every few weeks. He gave me all kinds of shit during that time. I never met him in person or anything. Uh, apparently that got my kid all excited. So he started going through my phone to see who else still followed me. I was blown away by some of the people I hadn't talked to in a really long time. They were close friends 10 years ago. I couldn't go a day without chatting with. I, I can't remember what happened, why I stopped tweeting. I mean, I miss it, but I'm not going to get, start getting back into it. I got too many irons in the fire as it is. I'm content right now being my mom at a Dua Lipa concert. She's people watching. She's enjoying the music. Actually, I'd go to a Dua Lipa concert. Something about her that is so intriguing. Uh, it's her demeanor on stage whenever I see her. She's kind of awkward and part stoned at the same time when she dances, like a seven-year-old at a recital who knows what she's supposed to be doing but can't be bothered with putting an F, any effort in into the dancing to be considered good at it. Plus, Dua Lipa's smile and detached attitude reminds me of Mira Sorvino in the late 90s, who was my celebrity hall pass between Ellen DeGeneres and Kate McKinnon. And yes, I know she's the only straight one of that trio. Speaking of concerts, kind of excited. God, I'm just, I'm all over the place tonight. Kind of excited. Just grabbed tickets to go see Bad Religion in April. One of my favorite bands of all time that I've never seen live before. I am really looking forward to that, which grabbing the tickets also reminded me of an old friend who will be on my mind the entire time I'm at that show. It's crazy how quickly things can change in life or how quickly I lose track of my thoughts. Yeah, where was I? I don't know. Don't discredit social media and the online friends you can make or the benefits they offer. 
Some of those friends will keep you sane. Some will help you move a body if you need to. Um, and if you need to, take the time to ask for help with whatever, not just moving a body. Uh, let's just say you're having a bad day or worse, a complete mental breakdown. Don't discredit social media and the friends you make there. I mean, I really, really miss my how's your week going friends. I pride myself on being a very open-minded film connoisseur. I enjoy sitting down in a dark theater with a box of popcorn and shutting the rest of the world off. I'll take the next couple of hours and immerse myself into the existence laid out before me. No matter whether I'm partaking in a quarter of a billion dollar epic drama shot in 14 different countries with last year's Best Actor winner and supporting cast that cost more than the Man City's starting lineup, or a 90-minute check straight-to-DVD low-budget action flick with an out-of-sync voice track. I am going to enjoy the escape from reality just the same. I may appreciate some movies more than others, but the point is that they're all a form of mental vacation and should be treated with gratitude. Over the last 30 years of avid, weekly, nearly daily at times, film consumption... I've developed a repertoire of films in all genres. From spaghetti westerns to horror to foreign to cult classics, I attempt to see them all. I even have in my collection everything from a western zombie flick with gore and cowboys, but get this, it's all marionettes, to Star Wars parody porn, to Italian gonzo pseudo-snuff films, to Titanic, to The Notebook. With a master list of experienced films... Uh, much like Holly Gibney, I figured I would share with you today my top 10 films that left me upset for days or even years. Some because of the graphic image of gore or violence, and others because of the taboo subject matter, and some just because they're so personal in their implications to my past or my strange thought patterns. The list is not a countdown. And it's in no way any kind of particular order or importance. I'm probably going to include a bunch of spoilers because none of these films are anything you should really be watching anyway. First, before we hit this list, though, let's discuss why I'm adding this into this week's podcast. A few of us were sitting around drinking last weekend and the new Joker came up because we were discussing the Oscars. We were arguing over Heath Ledger versus Joaquin Phoenix. I'm Team Ledger, by the way. Not that I didn't like the Joker or Joaquin Phoenix in it. I just loved Heath Ledger's performance maybe more than any other film villain, comic book or otherwise, ever. So dark, yet so detached and twisted while maintaining the PG-13 rating. That's some difficult shit. Anyway, someone in our group said that The Joker was one of the most disturbing films they'd ever seen. It was pretty disturbing, I mean, I'll give them credit, but nothing that stayed with me more than the span of the final credits. A couple of us just looked over at her and were dumbfounded. I mean, then we were all, that bothered you? Yeah, here, hold my beer. That's where this list came from. So, before we get into this, here, hold my beer list of horrifying, disturbing, violent, disgusting, and downright depraved films from all corners of the world, walks of life, and genres from romance to gorno with a healthy dose of shock horror, let me just say, I've seen all these films, 
Some of them not proud of that fact. I have copies of all these films. Again, some of that I'm not proud of the fact. And having watched them all, it's probably taken years off of my life. And the fact that I just own them all probably has me on a few government watch lists. So here's the disclaimer or the warning. If you're not into this sort of thing, just skip it. Uh, actually, now that I'm about to do it, uh, I have a better idea. I'm going to end the main portion of the podcast right here and instead go into a roundup of FIFA Mobile. If you're interested in this kind of list, I'll add it onto the back end of the podcast. That way the faint of heart can shut it down before their innocence is ever assaulted. Without any further ado, it's that time in the podcast where we get serious and dig into the brass tacks of FIFA Mobile, my personal addiction. First, though, if you have comments, topics you want me to talk about, questions about anything in the podcast, including but not limited to FIFA Mobile, hit me up at finallyhesleeps.com or send me an email to travisgetoffended at gmail.com. I'll make sure the email address is in the podcast episode description. I love hearing from you. Any interaction with listeners is welcome and needed for this podcast to continue to grow. Now, there's a bunch going on right now in FIFA Mobile. Lunar New Year came and went. The Marquee Stars event has come and gone. The Heartbreaker cash grab bullshit is finally over. The market is still in a slump. A bunch of us have about, I don't know, tens if not hundreds of millions of coins wrapped up in players we're waiting to sell. There's a bunch of rumors on the horizon, including SBCs, Icon tournaments, and more. So let's just take a look at the big stuff. What we do know right now is that on Thursday, the 20th of February, at the Daily Reset scheduled for 1900 UTC, the Animal Carnival event will be released. Let me repeat that. The Annual Carnival event will be released. At the time of this recording, I have no idea what to expect in this event. There's been a few teasers out there, including that it will be more grinding than Marquee Stars, but more grinding than and a grinding event are two very different things. Since Marquee Stars was like the guy who lived next door to us our freshman year of college, you know, done in five minutes, what can I say, the walls in the dorm were really thin, anything that takes ten minutes a day... 10 minutes, uh, could be considered more grinding than marquee stars. So there really isn't much to say there. Carnival players were leaked on FIFA renders today. Some are kind of exciting. Firmino, for example, or better yet, Allen with his odd card art, looking pregnant with an Adidas soccer ball like he's a 13-year-old pretending to be his 16-year-old sister whose boyfriend was too afraid to clog the family's pipes, so they pulled and prayed and are now three months into Lamas classes at the local YMCA. But the event could go either way with EA's recent track record. Speaking of which, generally I'm not the one to jump on the EA sucks bandwagon, but weeks like this past one make it difficult not to catch a ride. Between the lack of communication to the updates for one problem creating three more problems to the shooting getting screwed because they're trying to improve auto-switching players, to making auto-switching so dead instead of less sensitive, to it's now non-existent, to shooting everything wide of the goal, to everything hitting the post, to quests that you can't complete because they require events that we don't have, to, well, you get it. It's, it's been a bad week for EA on FIFA Mobile. 
In addition to Carnival, we've also discussed UCL, which was completely shot down on Discord for leg one of the round of 16, but instead teased as coming for leg two. Hmm. Selling any UCL player you picked up as an investment is going to be 100% based on whether they tease the event coming soon or not. I mean, that tease period is the money-making window for investments. Too much dry humping, though, and you'll miss your chance to come out ahead. Once the event drops, those players will be as good as a set of oversized blue balls. Another big update coming soon is perks. We've been talking about that for a couple of weeks now, but it looks like we should be seeing it materialize in the next couple of days. Hopefully. SBCs, or squad building challenges, are still a sore spot for most of us. Discord says yes, eventually. That's it. There's also some sort of icon-related event coming in the near future, according to leaks from EA on Discord, too. Um, That's kind of all we really know right now. Enjoy the market slump. Use it to build up your reserves so when it does shift, and yes, it will shift, you'll have a full stable of players to whore out to the market. Now that's as good a place as any to end this week's podcast. Make sure you check out FinallySleeps.com for all things FIFA Mobile and whatever else I decide to post. Find me on YouTube, Twitch, Instagram, Twitter, everywhere, all under the same name, Finally He Sleeps. If you haven't subscribed on both YouTube and Twitch, make sure you do. All of your support helps. Thanks for hanging out with me tonight. As long as you keep listening, I'll keep putting out episodes. And if you're still interested in that list of films, stick around after for the bonus. Otherwise, I'll see you on stream. Okay, if you're still listening, I'm going to apologize up front. Yeah, sorry. Here's the list. On it first is In the Realm of the Senses, which is a Japanese art house production from 1976. I was given this movie to watch by a fan of foreign films who thought I would appreciate the intricacies in the movie and its overall message and romance and blah 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 um, and just the theme back when I was in college. I was taking a film appreciation class and as soon as people heard that I was taking a film appreciation class, they started trying to one-up the class with their own recommendations. It's kind of like when you mention that you're going on a diet and everybody and their brother has the best diet for you that they have to tell you all about. I did thoroughly enjoy this Japanese film until the end. I had not been warned about the climax of the movie and was not prepared for the scene. Even though the film was made over four decades ago, the graphic image of that scene is still too much for me to even talk about. Possibly because I'm male and damage to that part of my body is just too much to visualize. The movie is about a hotel owner who has an affair with one of his maids. The sex is graphic and centers around the maid's obsession with asphyxiation. The final scene after Ashida's death is just, well... It's just ridiculous. Read ridiculous. As in dickless, like no dick. She cuts off Ashita's dick. There, I said it. Okay. Definitely starting this list off with a bang. 
I figured I'd go big for the first one. That way, if you were still around listening or you were on the fence, skipping this part of the podcast and just shutting it down. Uh, so that should make up your mind one way or the other. So if you're still here, number two, Event Horizon from 1997. The movie's still one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I experienced this film in the theater during its original release with my little sister and her boyfriend at the time. The brooding, I mean, the foreboding feeling of dread and doom was too much for my sister's adolescent suitor. Less than an hour into the film, this 14-year-old boy had to exit the movie to go to the restroom. You know, that was so they said, I have to go to the bathroom. When he didn't return for like a half an hour... I had to go looking for him. He was sitting in the entrance hallway, like where the trash cans are that you dump your popcorn on the way out of the movie. I mean, he was obviously shaken. Kid was messed up. Let's just say it. He says, I, I, I just can't do anymore. Tell me, tell your sister I'm sorry. So I, I ended up talking him into coming back in, but it was definitely the end of that budding junior high relationship. The movie left me feeling queasy but I really didn't know why. I think the issue with my younger sister's date numbed me from the film itself enough to maintain my collective cool that first time I watched it. But there's something about the concept of being stranded in an alternate reality which they perceive as hell in Event Horizon. The movie is about a spaceship that folds space and time to instantly travel from one point in the universe to another, except when it jumps, it doesn't show up at the other end. Then, seven years later, it reappears as a derelict rotating around Neptune in this orbit that's going to put it right into the planet. When the astronauts go to find it, the ship is sort of, it's kind of haunted, I guess. And the question is, where was it for those seven years while it was in transit across the jump? Viewing the film to this day still leaves me feeling sick. For years, this was a Halloween tradition at our annual Halloween party here at my house. Event Horizon, and a four-pack from John Carpenter. Halloween, Halloween 2, Prince of Darkness, and The Thing. We would watch those five movies every year for the holiday for about ten years. Well, it, it was a party, so let's just say they were on in the background. Not everybody was watching them. Okay, moving on. Did I mention I do have issues with being marooned and like Infinity, running with Event Horizon. Let's just stick with that theme. When I was nine years old, I watched the Bond classic You Only Live Twice from 1967 with Sean Connery, I think it was. Yes. It was a Saturday night sitting around the 25-inch console television with family and friends that was... I had a friend that was spending the night. 1985, so that was about the only thing there was to do. The movie is... I mean, it's, it's just a Bond movie. It's not disturbing in any means. I think it's PG. But to me, there was one scene in particular that caused a lifetime of therapy. The simple scene was of a black spaceship swallows another craft. That's it. During this maneuver, though, there's this astronaut in the middle of a spacewalk. And when the ship swallows the other ship, the astronaut is cut free and he floats away into space to his death. The implications of this caused a series of unanswered questions about our existence and the concept of infinite reality. That's all I'm going to say about it, but I felt this movie deserved a significant spot on this list for those personal reasons. Sue me. Let's just call this list the top ten movies that messed with me or fucked me up. 
<sighs> okay. Next up, we have Open Water, which is a 2003 low-budget psychological horror flick about a couple that gets left behind in the middle of the ocean while on a diving trip. Can you see a Can you see a recurring theme for me about getting stranded? Now, I saw this movie at the drive-in when I was first released. I was the only member of our party left awake. Now, I saw this movie at the drive-in when it was first released. I was the only member of our like five-person party that was awake at this point. It was like two in the morning. Uh, this movie played into my deepest fears of isolation from abandonment and the concept of endless nothingness, like looking out over the horizon and seeing nothing but water in all directions. And I had to watch it by myself while everyone else just snored. The fear of this is called apyrophobia, and it's kind of consumed my life over the last, we say, 35 years. I squirm in my seat whenever I see it in film. The open water basically made me sit through an hour of this sort of torture. The film is really well made, though, and on such a small budget, it should definitely be given the credit it deserves, more so than just being put on the list. Take the time to watch it if you haven't yet. It's straight terror. It's actually a good movie, uh, besides the reason it messed me up. When I was 16, a friend's father took a few of us to a local cult theater for a midnight viewing of the Italian horror flick Cannibal Holocaust from 1980. Um, the film is horribly made, first of all. Most of the audience watched the film while laughing at the production quality and the horrible acting. The movie is supposed to be a found film movie from a missing film crew that goes on an expedition into the jungle. This was nearly 30 years before the Blair Witch Project. There are several scenes in this movie that left my stomach twisting, including a graphically violent rape scene and a very disturbing scene of a group of cannibals eating a girl alive. I think the most disturbing part, though, was the poor production quality. But that aside... The movie wins its spot on this list. True story. One of my friends from high school who shared in my love of movies ended up working for Anchor Bay Entertainment as the VP of Acquisitions. He's moved on to other studios since then, but over the years he's went out of his way to get old films like this re-released. He's now one of the brains over at RLJE Films, the company that released Color Out of Space that we talked about in the last episode of the podcast. There are a bunch of movies that ripped off Cannibal Holocaust, uh, including Cannibal Ferox, Eaten Alive, Cannibal Terror, and even Eli Ross' Green Inferno from 2013. Was, that was basically just a remake. If gore and violence was an Olympic sport, then Guinea Pig 2, Flowers of Flesh and Blood, circa 1985, would win the gold medal. This Japanese short is nothing more than an experiment in torture on film. The movie centers around an abducted female who is systematically and slowly mutilated, disemboweled, tortured to death, while a handheld video just captures it all. Although the film is terrible, I mean, it's not a good movie. Its outright scenes of torture make the Saul series of films look like made-for-TV movie. Plus, it was made almost 20 years before Saw. Movie is god-awful. Not worth even... Ugh, it's a horrible movie, but it its level of being disturbing for its nature is... Ugh, that's... It, it 
just thinking about that movie, it kind of makes me feel greasy on the brain. <sighs> rape, it's, I mean, that's it, it's obviously one of the hardest types of tortures to witness while watching a film. I would imagine it to be quite nearly as hard to film and to film well. I mean, it's, it's got to be as hard as it is to watch. The 2002 Italian film Irreversible is a movie about revenge shot in reverse, sort of similar to the Christopher Nolan underground classic Memento. The rape scene is impossible to watch, I mean, without climbing up and over the back of your seat. Also, that violent rape scene lasts nine fucking minutes before Monica Bellucci is beaten into a coma. Yeah, this is actually a really good film. Uh, if you can watch and handle all the way to the climax, which is actually the chronological start of the film, even though it's at the end. What's worse is by the time you're finished watching the movie and you realize why the two main characters killed the guy in the beginning with a fire extinguisher, the beginning of the film, which is actually the end chronologically, because but it's at the beginning, uh, that's when you realize that the guy they kill is not the guy who rapes Alex. The guy who they were looking for escaped, making this entire string of events even worse. Now, that's actually a pretty... I mean, that's a good movie. It's just the subject matter that goes in with it is, God, is, is difficult. A lot on this list is is an, are Italian films. I'm kind of just now putting this together. Fucking Italians in their excellent food and really, really fucked up movies. The 1975 Italian film Salo, based on the book 120 Days of Sodom by the Marquis de Sade, was actually the first film that came to mind when we started arguing about disturbing films compared to Joker that night. Very few people will ever get the chance to experience this movie in its entirety. The film chronicles the torture and death of several underage victims at the pure pleasure of four powerful men during Nazi-occupied Italy in 1944. I originally watched the film because there was a local controversy that gained national attention. In Cincinnati in 1994, when I was first at university, an undercover policeman rented the movie from a local gay bookstore. After the film was viewed, the owners of the bookstore were then arrested for pandering. A group of prominent artists, including Martin Scorsese and Alec Baldwin, came forth and argued that the film, as disgusting as it was, did contain artistic merit. The case was ultimately dismissed before it all came about, but, but beyond that obvious controversy, the film is well executed and should be seen by a very specific type of film buff. Uh, just once. One viewing is enough, no matter what. If you're familiar with 120 Days of Sodom, imagine it in all of its horrifying glory. It's basically Caligula with Nazis instead of Romans more violence, and maybe a little less sex. Just a little. And no Helen Murin. Because Helen Murin was in Caligula. Another disturbing movie with Helen Murin. Helen Murin was in Caligula. If you didn't know that, Helen Murin was in Caligula. Much like Sylvester Stallone in The Italian Stallion, or Kim Kardashian, whatever you call that sex tape with Ray J that got her and her big fat ass famous. 
because of what that movie did for her and her brood of intellectually challenged wastes of consciousness, that sh- that thing, her and Ray J, that should be on this list too. But all right, the the Hong Kong movie from 1988, Men Behind the Sun, is a reenacted docudrama about Japanese war atrocities committed by Unit 731 at a biological test facility during World War II. Now, this film comes across as an exploitation film built around actual events, but it's so poorly made it can't be seen as anything but. However, the controversy that surrounds the film is is actually kind of interesting. Uh, it Included in it is an actual scene where two live cats are torn apart by a room full of rats. It's not special effects. It's actually a room full of rats killing two cats. It's ugh. actual autopsy footage of a young boy is also in the movie. It's it it breaks it. The movie's rough. The scenes of torture are incredibly hard to watch. After sitting through the entire film, some of the images were and still are burned into my brain. I don't think I could ever watch this movie again, and I definitely don't recommend it to anyone besides the specific few cult film buffs that will watch it just to say they have. I I, I don't know. I mean, you're going to have to watch it and be able to see it for what it is and discount the fact that the movie is nothing more than anti-Japanese propaganda. Men Behind the Sun. Blech. Alright, the last true movie on this list is the 1994 Spanish short Aftermath. Now, this is actually part of a trilogy of short films from Spanish filmmaker Nacho Cerda called The Trilogy of Death, which centers on three aspects of death and dying, the soul leaving the body, how those left behind deal with the loss, and what can happen to the empty vessel, or the, the body, I guess, uh, after death. Now, when you watch it with the other two films... 1990's Awakening and 1998's Genesis, Aftermath becomes an important part of the trilogy and does its job getting Serdis' point across. However, because it took eight years to complete this trilogy, what often happens is Aftermath is usually viewed on its own without the full scope taken into consideration. Now, why is it so disturbing? Well, the film shows what goes on after everyone leaves for the night in the morgue. Hijinks ensue as the coroner violates a body in every way known to man, taking photos while he's doing it. Okay, so hijinks isn't the best word to describe necrophilia and all of its implications, but I'm trying to keep this list uh, from, you know, it. okay, this thing sounded like a good idea when I was compiling it. That now seems like a really bad idea, and I'm trying to just keep it as upbeat as possible. And... The coroner steals the heart and takes it home and feeds it to his dog. The utter realism of the film is the most disturbing aspect. Every time I catch a glimpse of any kind of medical show uh, or documentary on cable, it brings me back images from this film until I just change the channel. I just can't do it from this point forth. If you are going to watch this movie, Aftermath, please watch the entire trilogy. Um... It's Nacho Cerda's The Trilogy of Death. Watch the entire thing in order. Don't just watch the aftermath. Now, there are a few more movies that nearly made this compilation. Uh, the runners-up are all disturbing in their own right. Many will argue that they should have been on this list. Uh, but, 
I mean, these were all stuff that we talked about, but for me, those 10 were the big 10. Uh, we, I mean, we also talked about Faces of Death, which was a series from 78 to 1999. Those films have terrible production value and are little more than shock flicks, but nonetheless worth mentioning. There's a scene where someone is injured in a junkyard with a jack gives way. I mean, that one still haunts me whether or not that footage is real. Uh, in 2007, they, uh, the movie An American Crime starred Katherine Keener and Ellen Page. That movie isn't necessarily graphic in nature, but the fact that it's based on real events and the nature of that crime is incredibly disturbing. Uh, let's see, what else did we talk about? Okay, I'm from Cincinnati, so I grew up 30 minutes from the location of the next movie we're talking about, 1997's Gummo. Um, that one follows the antics of two Xenia, Ohio residents wandering around huffing glue and meeting the strange lo- cast of local characters. The award-winning film is incredibly difficult to watch despite it just being kind of this gonzo flick. But it's really well made and definitely worth the rent. It's messed up, but it's not as bad as some of these other ones. Hostel by Eli Roth is another mainstream entry into the category of Gorno or torture porn, as we call it. What makes that movie stand out is its overall budget and execution. I mean, it's not generally... Usually those Gorno flicks are like straight-to-DVD, low-budget crap. But Hostel by Eli Roth was a feature film. Now, when I saw it, it was in the theater. People gagged. Nearly a third of the audience exited before the end of the movie. People just got them walked out. Now, also in the Gorno category for mainstream movies is the Saul series. Now, Saul 1 is a phenomenal film. I I loved the first Saul, but then they went downhill from there. Saul 3 in 2006 is, in particular, contains several scenes of disgusting torture, often slow and nearly impossible to watch without shuddering. A couple of close friends joined me at the theater for this film uh, when it came out in 2006, Uh, including one of which was my lead designer at work. She had to leave during the brain surgery scene because apparently that was her breaking point. Uh, Let's see. Eye for an Eye, 1996 uh, movie that features a very disturbing rape and murder scene with Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, That scene, the victim's mother, played by Sally Field, hears the attack over her phone because she's on the phone with her daughter when Kiefer Sutherland breaks in. Now, I was working at the movie when this film was released in 1996. So for every day, every showing, I got to watch people exit, complain to the manager, and get their money back. Within the cinematic realm, there are too many films of disturbing content to list. I mean, should The Devil's Advocate from 97 be on there? What about, uh, what's his name? M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong, the 19, no, 2008 movie The Happening. Maybe that should have been on the list. What about Takashi Mike's films, uh, like Ichi the Killer? Um, don't forget the many works of Joe D'Amato, including ugh, Anthropophagus. I think that's what, Anthropophagus? Yeah, from 1980. That movie included the infamous fetus eating scene. And yes, Joe D'Amato is Italian. I mean, what about all the trauma films? Even though they're 
comedic on the out. Uh, they often include some really horrifying content. I love Lloyd Kaufman, but some of those darker flicks from Trauma, like Tromeo and Juliet or Terra Firmer, they could have easily been on this list. There are actually a bunch more I could mention, God, from Scissors uh, to I Spit on Your Grave to Martyrs to the August Underground series. I forgot all about that. To Cannibal. Now, Cannibal, which is a true story about a guy who hires a suicidal man to consent to his own murder and consumption. That's that's a it happened in Germany. That's a true story. Now, the internet is a very lovely place. There's even some mainstream movies like Bully, Kids, and Requiem for a Dream that could have been on here. I mean, those are all messed up movies. Those are more like Joker messed up, though, than like Guinea Pig 2. You have other foreign flicks like, let's see, Frontiers or The Angel's Melancholy. Now, that one, I would put that up there with like the August Underground series. I could go on and on. Uh, you have the Antichrist with Willem Dafoe and oh, the Human Centipede. I have to mention the Human Centipede, which, by the way, is the only movie on this list or that I've talked about in this entire little bit here that actually made me physically sick, like running to the bathroom, throwing up my dinner sick. Human can the Human Centipede, Ugh, the first one. So the next time you're in the mood for a mental vacation. Just avoid any of the movies we just talked about. Uh, the purpose of these movies is to provoke intense emotions, which they all do. Just remember these emotions are not the ones you want, and they're going to be followed by a loss of sleep, nausea, in some cases, long-term mental scarring. Now, after that, we need a bit of a palate cleanser. Now, since we mentioned Cannibal Holocaust, as well as the 2006 German flick Cannibal, which Cannibal, that's a, that's a, mess, that's a hard movie to watch, but it's actually kind of cool. It's, it's about the actual case of Amin Mavis. A guy actually posted on like a Craigslist thing that he was a cannibal and that he was looking for someone to, that was willing to be eaten. That, that's what the that's what the the real case that actually happened. Somebody was looking for someone to eat, and there was somebody out there who was looking to be eaten. They hooked up. Shit happened. That that's a real story. The guy was arrested. He was convicted. I think he served life in jail in Germany for the whole event. That's what the 2006 movie is based on. It's called Cannibal. That, that really happened. I mean, the internet. Okay, so let's just throw in a like-minded joke following that up. So, just plane crashes. Three random guys end up stranded on a remote island. Unfortunately, that island is inhabited with a bunch of cannibals. That, that's your basic setup. The cannibals catch the guys and make them each a deal. The head cannibal tells them, if any of you guys can find ten of any kind of fruit and bring them back to us, we might not kill and eat you. For the sake of this joke, please assume that all cannibals speak English. Okay? So the first man goes out and he brings back ten oranges. 
the cannibals tell him, now you have to stick those ten oranges straight up your ass and not make a sound. If you can do that without making a sound at all, no peeps, nothing, we will not kill and eat you. So the man gets one orange up his ass and he audibly groans. The cannibals run in, they kill him, and they throw him into a giant pot of stew along with the other nine oranges. So the next guy comes back from the jungle and he's got a handful of cherries. So the cannibals tell him the same thing. You gotta shove them all up your ass and you can't make a sound. If you do that, we will not kill and eat you. So the man very slowly starts shoving cherries up his ass. He gets nine in and then he starts to laugh. The cannibals run over, they kill him and then throw him into the stew along with that last lone cherry. Now, when the second guy gets up to heaven, the first guy up there asks him, Dude, why did you laugh? You almost had it all in. And the second guy replies, Yeah, I, I know. But then I looked over and saw the last guy coming and he was carrying pineapples. That's it. Again, thanks for hanging out with me tonight. As long as you keep listening, I'll keep putting out episodes. Bye.